And thank you all from uh, from me and Tia, and we're going to like the blue touch paper, and we'll be seeing you all next year with some big surprises. And we're also lighting the blue touch paper with this first episode of Something Who. We're going to be discussing two stories, one from the classic series and one from the new, which have a linking theme. And to start us off, it's The Macra Terror from Season 4, recently released in animated form, and Gridlock from Series 3, proving that there really is such a thing as Macra. So joining us this evening, all the way from Australia, we have Mike. Hi. Mike, hello. Hi, how are you, Richard? Yeah, uh, spiffing. Oh, that's great. I'm um, just back from holiday, so, so you know, spring in my step. Glad to have you at the birth of the new podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Richard. Excellent. Also joining us, fresh from uh, his first outing on the Grumpcast, it's Simon. Hi. Hello, Richard. Hello again, fellas. Hey, Simon. You've been basking in that fame, presumably, over the last couple of weeks. <laughs> oh, if, if only, Richard, if only. I was waiting for the Easter eggs to arrive with all the fan mail. <laughs> mm, very good. And Giles, Giles, you're with us. Good to have you uh, on something, Who? Yeah, live via uh, two tin cans and a piece of string from Whopping. Yeah, and especially since it was your idea in the first place. Uh, can't blame you for everything, surely. <laughs> and finally, Paul. Yes, finally. Last, but very much least. <laughs> Never, never. I mean, I, I know how much research you've painstakingly done, so you know we're, we're glad to have a man <laughs> of your <laughs> of your expertise. I have at least one original observation to make this evening. Nobody else is qualified to make. You just wait for it. Ooh. Mm. It may Ooh, be disguised as a plug, one. but it's also an observation. Oh, okay. Uh, very good. Three pin or two pin. <laughs> So uh, you, you may have noticed that Simon and I on you know very much uh, a podcast from this stable, but nonetheless somewhat rival podcast, have already had something to say about the Macro Terra and the animation. So I thought it would be good to throw open as we start to the remaining three. So, so of course, in something who it's mainly about the story and about the, the, the two stories and about comparisons. But since we've just had. The Macro Terror released as a DVD and an animation. Uh, certainly, you know, if you've got something relevant to say about that, it'd be interesting to hear what it is. Mm, wouldn't it? <laughs> I've got to be careful here. I, I don't want to um, tread in anyone's says I don't want to repeat anything you said in the other podcast. And I, do you know what? I haven't had time to listen to your Sterling work, either of the times you recorded it. So, <laughs> But um, I... I'm going to be boring and say I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was the most fun I've ever had watching the Macro Terror. So <laughs> I was delighted. I was delighted. <laughs> Very good. Oh, thank. You. Yeah, I thought it was. A, they'd done a pretty good job of it. Some some debatable animation choices aside, I don't I don't object to them. Um, sprucing, oh yes, sprucing up the macro. Obviously they, shouldn't, obviously they shouldn't have cut that scene out and Charles Norton should be hung, drawn and quartered and dragged through the streets of London. But apart from that, it was brilliant. I say that as a friend. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I, I, I went to the screening and I was discussing with someone afterwards. I'm not sure whether it's... Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's fair enough, to, fair, enough, fair enough to mention the name Derek Handley here, who 
He's obviously famous for working on the recons and so on. And uh, he wasn't yeah. so much... Um, it wasn't intended as a, as a slight towards that or anything like... Uh, uh, he wasn't being dismissive of it, but we were just t- talking about it. And so he was saying, well, it, it must have been a very simple setup the way they did that in the studio at the time, because they ha- they know enough to know it was done in the studio as <laughs> part, of, part of a recording as live. So pretty much mm-hmm. all they could have done was put put Troughton into a um, into a box and had some dressers in there who very rapidly changed his clothes while he was standing in there, and he stepped out. So it's not like it was anything that would have doesn't feel like it would have been anything that was incredibly difficult to animate, necessarily. Well, no, I, I am unconvinced that it would have needed much more than drawing a slightly rumpled coat for Patrick Troughton, which would have probably taken um, the esteemed Mr. Geraghty 20 minutes. Mm. But as Charles Norton is the new Walt Disney, who am I to argue? <laughs> <laughs> if, the, if his spreadsheet said no, they couldn't afford it, then I'm sure that's correct. Mm, it's not yeah. just because he has no sense of humour and doesn't think that frippery in, has any place in Doctor Who. It's not and, they, and they didn't dance off stage at the end either, did they? But I mm. can appreciate that would have been a more tricky that would have been a more tricky setup to have actually animated potentially. But um, mm. but the clothes. Revivifier, or whatever it's whatever it's called, yes, disappointing loss. Yeah, can I just say that um, I'd actually like to thank Charles Norton because um, watching Macroterra <laughs> was probably like watching the Macroterra here in Australia in 1967 with um, bits of it cut out. So it was like an experience that <laughs> was making an experience for. There's no Mars. <laughs> So yeah. thank you, Charles. Cartoon pro- thank you very much. The cartoon produced <laughs> in association with ABC Television. <laughs> <laughs> well, may- like maybe that. they'll find the missing missing bits of cartoon in in your books <laughs> in thirty five years time. Yeah, it'll end up on Lost in Time, the cartoon years or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I along yeah. with the famous m- milk scene from Sharda. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, um, <laughs> I I hated the colour, by the way, but that I always do. But anyway, we won't go into that. There are bits of it that I thought was okay, and there's bits that I didn't like, which I will mention as part of the story, because it's relevant to the story, because I don't want to go into much about the actual animation itself. But um, yeah, well, I don't know what's going on with poor old Polly. She never looks like Polly. And um, yeah, maybe third time, when they do the faceless ones, that they might actually get Polly and Ben right, which would be good. Anyway, moving along. Well, unless they take the cue from the title. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep. True. Okay, so perhaps in that case, having having briefly discussed the animation, if we then maybe get into discussing Macroterra as a story and uh, what we got from, from, from watching it via the animation, or indeed the, the telesnaps, if that was how you consumed it, who was to kick us off with thoughts on the Macroterra? Well, my general thought was that... Um, my first experience of this story was um, from the audio, and, my, and I saw the um, recon, um, the loose cannon one, and then when I was watching it, it, it became apparent to me there were certain elements of it that I hadn't really picked up on before, mainly how bloody noisy the thing is. And I think that's because when you're, um, when you're listening to it or you're watching the, uh, looking at the telesnaps, you actually form some kind of picture in your mind, and you're actually moving along and you've got sort of an idea about how the story goes and you're concentrating on that and you don't sort of notice some of the other stuff. And um, I noticed that um, 
uh, I had a chat with Simon about this early on when he'd seen it, and um, yeah, he sort of wasn't overly keen on the whole story, and I thought he was just being unnecessarily harsh in our years of um, watching Arsenal managed by Arsene Wenger and stuff like that. But um, what happened was that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, and then I saw um, the thing, and, and, and it became apparent how it, it is really, really noisy. Like that tannoy voice is very persistent and quite mm. annoying after a while. And the, the alarms are going off constantly, and it really, it's, it's really quite distracting when you're actually when everything's sort of there for you. And it, it's not the animation's fault at all. It would probably be the same if I was watching it um, if the episodes had actually been found, which they haven't. Yeah, I just found it really sort of distracting and annoying. Um, certain other elements as well, like the <laughs> character of Barney, who I think, um, I don't know what it is about the, the Troughton years, but every season seems to have uh, one character who's extremely annoying. Uh, sort of, you know, it reached its zenith in season five with Evans, who's probably more irritating than anybody in the whole of Doctor Who put together. Um, it's certain elements of that, it's sort of, I found it a bit distracting with the noise and stuff, and... Yeah, I don't know how everybody else felt if they listened to it beforehand and that sort of distraction. And not not a lot happens. Do you know what? I, I as you asked that you did ask, mm. but if it, uh, mm. perhaps you you didn't actually expect an answer, I did have yeah, an observation no, to make about this, the sound. The sounds. Yeah. I was, I hadn't spotted before watching it as a cartoon that the just. Ha- it seems emblematic of yes. The, okay, the, there are a lot of jingles and things which I can see you found annoying. That's but if you put that aside, that there's a lot of atmospheric sound effects here that I only really noticed be, where, because there were long dialogue-free scenes. Yes, where if it weren't for these rather atmospheric, non-naturalistic yes. sound effects, they were sort of halfway between music mm. and 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 actually. <laughs> textual yeah. sound effects you weren't quite sure answer whooshing and winding wind noises and rustling sounds yes but electronic clearly electronic clearly radio workshop mm. stuff and I thought if if they hadn't put that in the soundtrack this would be very this would be deathly dull to, to watch they're true and it made me appreciate mm. all over again just mm. how extraordinary the sound effects are mm. And how unique they are in '62. It also made me wonder when they stopped doing that. I associate it with the black and white years. Mm. My own personal <laughs> marathon has just reached early Pertwee, and I don't feel like the stories have. I guess as the as the incidental music rises in importance in this show, the the sound effects drop back to only ever mm. representing specific things that we see happening. If you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it it goes alongside the music. They um, there's a certain clumsiness to the way the music is edited. You'd often There'll be a scene with no music, incidental music whatsoever. Then they'll cut to an action scene or a or a tension scene, and the music will click in mm. immediately, and then stop again as soon as you get, you cut yeah. back. And yes. um, in a rather, in a, again, a, a slightly clumsy technical technical way of editing, which I associate with the sixties. And by the time you get to the seventies, we we're mm. into the era of music flowing on between scenes and yes. being treated That's a bit more subtly. So that's just a it is, in some ways, um, part of the technical ma- making of the show, but it also adds to the atmosphere, and it was something I hadn't spotted hmm. until hmm. I saw it go... It, it almost felt like it was designed to go along with a cartoon. It was interesting. Yeah, the, the bit that I thought was quite impressive in the whole thing, where the animation and the sounds really did sort of mesh really well, was the bit with the, uh, the old bloke, the controller and the claw. Um, hmm. I thought that that um, was really quite effective, and... 
that bit, you know, and the sound and everything really sort of did mesh really well with that sort of um, scene. Um, you can almost hear the, the tannoy, the macro in the background going, get that claw out of shot, get that claw out of shot, that type of thing. But um, yeah, that's one of the sort of incongruous parts of the whole story is, you know, the, the macro um, are trying to keep everything secret, yet they allow themselves to be shown quite easily as part of that um, scene when they're actually you know, showing that everything's okay, which is kind of odd. Um, and I had some sort of issues with the story itself, um, which I always have, really, I suppose. But um, it became more apparent just sort of seeing it on the screen. And that's no fault of the animation, in my opinion. That's the actual story itself. Also picking up on this thing about the sound, I mean, I, I had almost exact, almost the exact reverse scenario to, uh, to what you felt, Mike, that, um, that I, found the, I found the audio CD and... Recons to some extent. I don't think I've ever actually tried to watch it on a recon, but um, I certainly listened to it on audio a few times. From the from, it was released on audio tape, wasn't it? Yes. Back in the day. Yes. And so, yeah, it was. so I remember listening to it, to it on tape, and then and then on the CD, which is still a cleaned up version. And basically, the the wall of sound effects and so on, and the lack of dialogue, I found it one of the most unlistenable. Um, Mm, yeah, yeah. I found it basically unlistenable until, and you know, um, to say nothing of Colin Baker's uh, dialogue as scripted by JNC. <laughs> um, um, but yeah. I, I found basically it was one of one of the ones I've struggled most with on on audio, and I felt that actually having a visual representation of what was going on, you know, that you know, I, I found that worked better, and the, the soundscapes and so on worked quite well in that context, um, which I think was what Paul was sort of getting at. Although I did find, did feel that there's a very strange mm. thing, and mm. it, it really took me out of it when I I watched it. The um, I was at the BFI for the for the premiere screening, as it were, and um, it really took me out of it at the time. And then I then yeah. I sort of went and researched it and realised that it must have been a strange production issue with the original, which was the after they materialise. That the whole sound goes echoey, and I thought, well, hang on, this this must be intended to be shot in a cave or interior shot, and and yet, and yet there was this strange jarring thing between the TARDIS, mm. yes. I believe, materialising yeah, yes, on, a, on, the, on a hilltop in um in the filmed inserts that they did with with Medoc running around, uh, and then then the TARDIS crew exit into a studio set. Where they're suddenly surrounded mm. by rocks that aren't visible in the, um, you know, so they're sort of in a rocky canyon or something like that, which is completely invisible in the in the shot where the TARDIS materializes, at least according to what I can make out from the tele snaps. And um, I spent about five minutes being really annoyed by this echoey sound, and thinking why have they shot it as mm. outside and when it must be in the interior with that with all that reverb on it. And then yeah, I looked at it and thought, okay, no, they've they've just matched it up to what the real experience would have been like mm. but it's odd yeah i mean i was really look, looking forward to the to this animation because of the fact as you say charles it's kind of, it's for pretty hard work trying to follow it um on the cd version but sadly I, I found myself you know drifting off and falling asleep in 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 one or two of the episodes i admired the effort that they've done with the animation but i just didn't find the the, the story as compelling as i'd hoped no it's not. That's the problem. <laughs> Perhaps we want to discuss the story and, and, and what we make of that. 
I'm sad to hear that because I'm very mm. fond of it. And I think it's a story that I've only enjoyed more every time I've been exposed to it. Um, I, fairly, it I was going to ask if we, if we think it's generally underrated by the mm. fandom at large. And it sounds, <laughs> I think we can assume it is if, if our panel's yeah. anything to go by. I was a bit hard on the Ian Stewart Black's other stories. I think um, I, in, when I discussed the Savages on another podcast uh, mm. in, a, in another place recently, Tim had to talk me up on it because I found it very dull. It had some nice ideas and a few interesting moments, but I just generally found the treatment and the characters and the dialogue just rather drab. He wasn't that keen on the war machines either, despite my attempts to, <laughs> to paint it as a precursor to everything that was to come in the 70s. Who, But here, there are ideas... It takes the traditional... Doctor Who, base under siege story, mm. which by this point wasn't traditional. It gets in. Mm -hmm. It gets in as one of the first of those stories and subverts it, which is interesting because then the year after we get a non-subverted, a straight telling of this same story again and again and again. Mm -hmm. It's the the specifics of the telling, the the humour, the the campness, the <laughs> most the, of that's gone now. That <laughs> appeals to me. I don't, I I, I um. I found it pretty dull, unfortunately, Paul. I, I think it suffers from a lack of strong characters other than the, the TARDIS crew, really. There are some very good actors in, in roles in it, but I don't I don't think the parts were written well enough mm. for them. And the, Unfortunately, the macro themselves are pretty underwhelming. Apparently, they've got strong hypnotic powers and they've taken over this entire colony. But, I mean, if there's a natural gas there anyway and they've been living for hundreds of thousands of years... it. it, it it, it, it all seems a bit. It all seems a bit pointless, unfortunately. I, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. There. I don't think the characters are particularly three-dimensional at all, and the story is nothing special. It's but it's not very good science fiction. It's rather silly if you if you tr take a step back and look at it seriously. But kind of that with Doctor What Who. I like, it's it's more of a fairy tale style, but not in the same way that a lot of, um, say, Hartnell stories are more fairy tale than science fiction. Not in a sort of web planet sort of way. I don't know. It's, I'm finding it hard to explain here. Mm. It's mm. it's not it's not quite a satire or an allegory, but it is clearly just being approached from a different angle than it's standard. Here, like which a, I've, I'm, like I'm giving it Butlin's holiday camp. I'm giving it points for that. I think that's the strong part of it, Mike and, and Paul as well. The you know all is not what it seems on the surface. You know, everyone's happy and there's that holiday camp atmosphere and that yeah. that. That could have been a lot more interesting, and that could have been explored a bit, a bit mm. better. Yes, um, I mean, yeah. bring us back to those those jingles that annoyed Mike so much. I feel like it's doing a similar sort of thing to the Happiness Patrol all those years later, and slightly more successfully. Yeah, yeah. Without wish, without dragging this review into a review of a completely different story, one of the things mm. that never quite worked <laughs> for me with the Happiness Patrol is the fact it was clearly supposed to be a very bright, shiny, colourful. Oh well, ah, mm. not everyone agrees with me on this. I always assumed that the script was asking for a bright, shiny, colourful, mall-like atmosphere, and the design department went with something rather different, made it look rather drab. Mm. But everything that that story mm. was um, was trying to do, I, f I just feel comes across slightly better here. Yeah, my my point was not so much the jingles; it was the 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 incessant the, the tannoy voice and the which is incessant most of the way, and the alarm sound like it just. It, to me, this is the first time I, I've ever really noticed it. Were you listening to one on a pair of very expensive headphones or something? I, mm. I'm not, maybe you should get... <laughs> these, these, these Bose things, this is what does it, you see. Yeah. <laughs> when they work, of course. <laughs> I think it's interesting what, what you say about the actors, that um, 
it's and that, that's obviously something that sadly we we inevitably have to lose when we look at any kind of reconstruction, whether it be telesnap or or animation. But obviously, yes, you've got some quality actors there, and in particular Peter Jeffrey, who you would think yes. could is someone who could, who would make a um make a silk yeah. purse out of a out of a sow's ear and would be undoubtedly watchable uh, more than he, you know perhaps more than he is just listenable when that's all you've got to go from. And obviously, we you know we lose masses hmm. of Troughton business. <laughs> into the and and the chap who plays the main mm. baddie. What's his name? I'm not. Going oh, to the security to chief guy. Ola. Yes. Yeah. Ola. Anyway. Oh, oh Gerton Clauber. Mm. Yes, he's good, and he. Yeah, that's what I would have said. Yes. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, should, I should have just gone for it, shouldn't I? <laughs> yeah, he would have added value. I think he would. have yes. got a very expressive face, yes. which comes through in the animation as well. So I, I think, I think the actors do it enough justice. Peter Jeffrey gives us another. Well, he's not really the villain here, is he? But he gives another subdued, sympathetic villain uh, performance to rank alongside the androids of Tara. I don't think you could call, I don't think you could call Count Grindel of Drugs subdued. <laughs> no, no. Oh, it is. It's a, it's a masterpiece of understatement. <laughs> the sound, you, you talked about the sound earlier. I mean, the production values of Doctor Who get, get mocked. I mean, the macro props in the original are pretty awful but the sound in Doctor Who that, that's always been cutting edge and you know they almost it, they almost feel the need to make it sciencey having all those sound effects but the great the huge irony is that here in the present time and moving onwards life and technology is getting quieter and quieter isn't it with electric cars and microprocessors and things like that but in, in all those futuristic sets back in the 60s you always had to have whirring computers and things like that making lots of noise to make it sound futuristic and it's the mm. it's the same as well with that with that colony would anybody like to help me try and bottom out what the story is about because if we're going to compare it compare contrast with gridlock we can't really just mm. talk about the production values so so let's i i've had trouble but um, I made a, <laughs> I tried to make a start what what do we think it is I, like i said it's i don't feel like it's yeah. a satire Quite, or or an allegory, but what is it? Is it's it? uh, one of those vaguely dystopian future style things. Uh, Mrs. Mrs. Paul Morris, who sat next to me watching mm. it, that's. I doubled down on the research this time. Not only did I watch it, I actually got somebody else to <laughs> so, just to make up for all those previous occasions. I think she she made the obvious um, comparisons to 1984, mm. and I brought in my favourite trick which is they are but what about Brave New World yeah. I do like the flip side the yin and yang of 1984 and Brave mm. New World the two different dystopian futures the authoritarian version and the future in which we sleepwalk which we hap- the, the which I the Brave New World version where, which I think is close to the real world where we've happily surrendered our freedoms happily given over our private lives mm. I think it's an interesting mixture of the two but it's clearly for me it's close to the Brave New World because and I think that's where the holiday camp atmosphere comes from. That's, it's giving the masses mm. entertainment. So as of, they yeah. do have literal drugs, um, hypnotic voices in the night, mm. gas, uh, hypnotic drugs being pumped into the room. But also just, I think generally the idea that they are being kept passive by being entertained. Yeah, this is sort of to yeah. death. Mm. It's like the prisoner in the the village well, setting this is the as whole well. Thing, wasn't, yeah. wasn't the wasn't the Manchurian candidate? That was that was the early sixties as well. Not yes. It's not it's not like nineteen eighty four mm. or Brave New World, but brain brainwashing was very topical and all the rave in the sixties, mm-hmm. wasn't it? And lots of things. But yeah, those the, goddamn yeah, the, the, 
the prisoner thing in, in particular is it's you know it's obviously the, the comparison has been drawn before but you can't help but think okay there's something they're getting out there that it must have been something that was in the zeitgeist about that because you know two dystopian holiday camp kind of environments mm. and interestingly enough we found out um, I, I too did some actual research for this uh, at least as far as looking up looking up Institute mm. Black's resume and um, I saw he was actually um, executive producer and writer of uh, some of Danger Man so ah. I did wonder although admittedly only so far as IMDB can tell you and obviously anyone can put anything on that probably only in about 1960 in the first series of Danger Man Mm, okay. uh, unfortunately, for the theory that because I did think, well, did we go and see this? Did this part? You know, did this? Because frankly, that the the opening scene in particular, the whole thing with Medoc, you know, frankly, all it needs is a giant rubber ball bouncing after him, and um, and it would <laughs> it would come straight mm. out of the prisoner. Those first five minutes of yep of weirdness. Peter Jeffrey is our our new number two. Mm, yes, yeah, mm. absolutely, yeah, and the whole thing, and Not- again, disembodied Tannery voices. Uh, people not being who they yeah. say they're going, you know, who they say they're going Absolutely. to. Yes. Yes. The, the 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 control, the face of control on the wall. Uh, I mean, there may be another ant- antecedent, but it reminds me of the face of Big Brother, uh, yes. which is mm. throughout 1984, and which is also pastiche in pastiche in Inferno. Yes. I'm I'm watching at the moment. That's. I don't know anything about Ian Stewart Black as a writer, so if I were to hazard a guess, which obviously I'm going to. He just gives me the impression of one of those mm. non-science fiction writers who's been tasked with writing some what he would assume is supposed to be science fiction. And of course, those three Doctor Who series he does, he, he takes a slightly different angle each time, which is one of the main things I find interesting about mm. it. A lot of people, a lot of writers, some very good writers fall flat on their faces because they panic at the thought of writing science fiction. They think they need to... They either write very bad pastiche science fiction or they come in with ideas... That, that they think are going to be extraordinarily original without knowing that they're hackneyed. You know, it can go wrong in so many different ways. <laughs> the Ian McEwan approach, think, as it's known. I think this is his most successful because he's... I mean, unlike with the war machines, he's like, mm, I don't know. I was going to say the war machines, he just threw in some mad giant robots, but I suppose just throwing giant crabs in. Can I mention the crab-stroke-insect dilemma here? In case. Hmm. <laughs> well, I gather that the script originally referred to insects, and that was what the writer had in mind. And presumably fairly late in the day, yeah, possibly yeah. only on the day when Shawcraft models rolled up and mm. showed them their, <laughs> what they'd come up with. Somebody panicked and went through the script with a red pen, writing crab in. Not, they should have been crossing out insects and replacing it with a crab, but for some reason they don't. For some reason, every time somebody refers to an insect, they say, or crab. Mm-hmm. They've left the original line of dialogue and then added, or crab, at the end of it, which is hilarious the first time, and it just gets better yeah. and better. I, <laughs> no. If I'm ever a script editor, that's how I shall approach it. <laughs> Trying to find a, a compromise between the writer's vision yeah. and the production realities, which which yeah. satisfies no one. Mm. <laughs> well, you know, if they just use the word board throughout. <laughs> uh, yes, Ian Stuart Black seems to have done you know a variety of novels and things, military stuff. He, he had it, apparently he had a couple of films produced, one of which was about the Cyprus emergency situation. He was story editor on Sir Francis Drake. One of those good old 60s adventure serials. Seems to have had a mixed career. I think that mm-hmm. would be the best. Possibly, probably coming to it from a military background, I think. Interesting. Does, does anybody have any mem- memories of his three novels? Because he's one of those lovely 60s writers who was still around in the 80s and wrote their own, mm. wrote their own novelizations, didn't mm, he? No. I remember being oh. taken by... <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm pretty sure I was fairly <laughs> taken with the War Machines novelization when it when it was out. I mean, my... I do. That's the only one of the three I remember, mm. and it's not just because he writes in Chesterton, though. Obviously, that's oh, of course, win yes, yeah. <laughs> they were a bit too late for mm. me. I, I think I think I'd given up with with the novels by the time those ones came out. Yeah, same same with me. I think. Yeah. Oh yeah, sorry. I should have remembered that we had uh, to ask our resident OAP. <laughs> <laughs> One point I want to make about the animation and where it sort of fell down for me was the bit in the forbidden area, um, which I had in my mind this tense sort of realisation that it was very dark and tense. And when I saw it in the animation, it's sort of wide and expansive and quite well lit. Um, and you have yeah. sort of, you sort of have me, Doc, sort of, um, sort of swanning about, you know, like he's um, auditioning for um, Strictly Come Dancing. Um, which is known as Dancing with the Stars here, um, and that sort of thing. And then Jamie's sort of swatting about, um, he's sort of like sashaying around like he's just walked off the set of a 10cc film clip. And the, the character movements there are particularly disappointing. And I think a lot of the tension is sort of lost, um, particularly the, in the early part, um, because um, of the way it's portrayed on screen. And you sort of think, well, yeah, it's okay. And then Medoc suddenly disappears and... Jamie gets cornered, and that bit's quite good, but the lead-up to it is, yeah, it just seems a bit lacking in tension, as far as I could tell. It didn't come across very well yeah. at all. And, and I, so, so I think what, what, we got, what we'd find if we ever were able to see the original stories is that it would be you know, much better and much worse than the animation simultaneously. Yes. Mm. Well, it'd exactly. be really, really exactly. dark for a I start, mean, so you, you couldn't see the prop. <laughs> yeah. Mm. You're complaining that that set was too big, but of course... If it would have been absolutely tiny, and the actors would have been yes, but it's a mine shaft, so it would have been kind of claustrophobic. So, which you don't get that impression. Don't make excuse. Don't make excuses for Riverside Studios. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, and and the, the reason they did that in the animation was partly, I suppose, I'd, I'd hit with my direct insight into Charles Norton's brain. <laughs> I, I guess they like to make the sets look bigger whenever they can. Which you, you right may may well be just intrinsically wrong if you take the po- purest point of view. But it was also to fit more macro in. They they could... Mm. Mm. The macro were probably bigger than in Stuart Black imagined, whatever the hell he was imagining, mm. um, bipedal insects, and you've got flat, lumbering, giant crabs, which do stretch one's credulity as to how they would have set this whole thing up mm-hmm. but let's not go let's not go there. I was just going to say one other point of reference that suddenly occurred to me was... Um, was Quatermass in the pit? In terms of here, we have insects and mind control, or insectoid mind control stuff going on as well. And I wonder whether that might have been. Well, it would definitely be in the back of anybody's mind. Mm. Any any non science fiction fan who was struggling to think of an example of science fiction mm. would have Quatermass in the pit in the back yes. of their mind, wouldn't they? So yeah, almost certainly. Mm. Yes, I did. Actually, that's a good point. When I was idly mulling, what precisely Ian? I'm going to call him Ian now. <laughs> Ian had in mind. Mm. On the assumption it wasn't giant crabs, yes, they did pop into my head. The um, those peculiar little beasties from Quatermass in the Pit. Hmm. I don't know. Is it's 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 not really a it's not really a reds under the bed story, is it? Or I don't know. It's very hard to hard to pin I down. I don't think so because they normally tend to be really obvious, like the aforementioned web planets. Uh, I I think it's. I wasn't say cleverer than that, or it could be more stupid than that. It could be that he didn't actually have an angle on this, but that's okay. 
Are there any topics we haven't covered yet? What, what topic sh- would the um, the lead macro come under? The the control macro. He's my favourite character. He's so <laughs> hysterical and camp. He's fantastic. He's the best villain in the whole of the sixties. And uh, <laughs> the giant I think crab. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to keep pushing this until you all love it as much as I do. Go on. There's something about the production which I think is in sympathy with Ian Stuart Black's story. Mm-hmm. Ian Stuart Black's themes, what the ang- the specific angle he's taking, whatever that was. If I think the director gets it. Who's the director? Oh, it's um, he was he was a one shot. Not, not one of the classics, is he? No, not yeah. John, John Davis. Davis. He was actually there. Hmm. As, um, he was actually there at the BFI thing, but sadly didn't really. They only get. They only talked to him for about two minutes. They just got him to stand up in the audience, and um, and he is he on the commentary? Does anyone know? Ooh. He really didn't appear to remember all that much. I, I, haven't, I haven't listened to the commentary, but Tim did. I think he, I think John Davis turned up in a Toad Behaver Who's Round or something like that, but but he wasn't specially interviewed. I think for this. Now, I, I may not have to credit him. I could just credit the voice actor who played Control, because uh, I, don't, I don't want to keep saying Control. Is that what they called him? The voice on the... Not the old man on the screen, but the voice of the lead. Yes. Because there's something interesting going on there. He's clearly written as hysterical. The slightest opportunity, the lead macro flies into a panic. The whole... It's very rarely... There are no such things as macro. There are no such. Is, there are no such things as macro. Mm. Which, to be fair, is quite suspicious. You'd start to think, hmm. Yeah. Me thinks he doesn't possess too pay much. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. <laughs> which, which I, lo- but I mean, he does get completely hysterical and is yeah. throwing hissy fits all over the place mm. towards the end. I love that. Is that another reference? Like, actually, is 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 it a wizard what story? Um, well, it's probably one, mm. isn't it? It's another. Fantasy for non-fantasy people. Mm. It's got to be in the. It's got to be in the mix somewhere. Mm. I apologise for shouting. You're going to have real trouble with that in the in the uh, <laughs> in the edits, aren't you? So. It, it'll be great. <laughs> Look at your little face. Looking forward to it already. <laughs> <laughs> I just think Macroterra can be summed up as um, a story about where the Doctor cures a bunch of jolly hockey stick colonists of a bad case of the crabs. Really. Mm. <laughs> oh, it, can I hold up the satire yeah, sign? Yeah. <laughs> it, so, so you've you've sort of got about two it's or three things going on at the same time, haven't you? You you you've, you've got the the same idea, I suppose, as, for, as the brains of Morphoton from um, oh yes from oh, Keys yes. and Marinus. So you've got this idea of okay, you know, people perceive it to be fantastic when actually it's a bit dire. You've got this sort of satire on happy clappy get people singing a happy tune while they work and maybe they'll feel better about it alongside it and then you've also got the the kind of holiday camp thing as well and if it, it, it feels like this sing a happy tune when working holiday camp and per- perception altering are, are sort of all working together but not necessarily quite together slightly at cross purposes uh, at times but they're all there in the mix is this at the peak of the um the holiday camp that era the the highly high times the working class is going off and they're jolly for a week entertained by by yellow coats and then they're back at work again for the other 51 weeks of the it's year. a wee bit late because, for that i think i would have thought right. so yes yeah. but it would have the colonists are working for the macro so it could be i can't think of any other possible satirical angle other than it's a class maybe Stuart back was right it was aimed for a class to foment class war 
Hmm. We are all working for the macro in our own way, ladies and gentlemen. Rise, rise up and overthrow your crab overlords. Hmm. Hmm. Well, you could say the savages has slightly similar themes in that regard, doesn't it? I suppose. Yes. If if the, if the savages are about class rather than race, which, it, but you know they intersect. Hmm. We should stay clear of the politics, <laughs> because, well, I should, because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. <laughs> Simon, any other thoughts? We haven't heard you for a little bit. I'm sure it's coming across to people listening, but it's really not one of my favourite stories, unfortunately, Richard. I, my Paul's spirited defence <laughs> and and looking looking for things things of interest in it, but I honestly, it's it's. Mm. Three episodes too long for me. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> okay, I think I like the space. I think I like the space pirates. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> that, that's a big call. Oh, okay, a... one question though um, to everyone: What do you think about the distribution of like the Doctor and Companions, the the team, and in particular, is this a, you know obviously we've just come off the back of reviewing a season of Doctor Who. In which, hmm. um, in which, one of our common refrains were was that they just weren't funny enough for the having having yeah. a crew of three companions to deal with. Is this a story that's where they are struggling in that regard? Do we feel, or do we feel they're well distributed? Well, I, I can't put. I, it felt okay to me. I can't put my hand on my heart and say that it wasn't written for two companions, and that it's possible Jamie and Polly, you know, don't have enough individual strands to justify two but uh, it gets points for me just by giving something new to, for Ben mm. to do yeah um, that's a yeah. and also I think this is the first story in which Jamie actually has anything to do yeah um, the mind scenes are the yeah. the mind sorry Mike the mind scenes are, are one of the strongest elements of it and it and it, and it does it gives Jamie license to show off what he what he what he can do mm. a bit of heroic Heroicism, it's, if that's such a word. It's a bit of a nail in the coffin for Ben as a character. It's completely not his fault that he's the one who falls victim to no. the, no, the baddies. No. But it, remi- it reminds one of Adric in season nineteen, and and what and the, you know, it just sort of leaves a lingering feeling that, that it makes the character. You know, you have slightly less sympathi- sympathy for the companion mm. subconsciously, and, and well, I'm Mike, a bit Mike worried Yates about that, that as well. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah. indeed. Yeah, I mean, I was going to yeah. say, Mike Yates, it, 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 and, and I'm, I have this kind of, you know, worry that that you you get you get this, and then in the next story you've got the faceless ones, and you got more kind of possession and and, and mind control, and, and you know, I wonder if then having left the uh, the TARDIS crew at the end of that, he uh, disappears off and joins Operation Golden Age or something like it. I mean, he, he's he's sort Ooh. of ripe for being. Mm. Um, in a bad way. Who's going to be the first to suggest that Big Finish looks into that <laughs> in a sarcastic tone of voice? Because we can. We have a new Ben, so mm. Mm, who knows? I, I, what could he have been? He could have been in the background of all sorts of things during the 70s. Yeah. I think we have, an, em- we have an emissary to it, 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 into the Big Finish scene. I, 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 I think you've... You know, there, there's certainly an angle for you there, Paul, if, if you're remotely interested. Cool. I'll get straight on it. See ya. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, tell you, I'll... <laughs> So let's talk about about gridlock. So interestingly, uh, when we when we first talked about this, I thought gridlock. Yeah, Macra. I mean, you know, clearly there's, there's a very tenuous connection between the two. Um, and, and actually, when I watched gridlock for the first time, 
I thought uh, RTD's just kind of dumped the uh, the crabs into gridlock, and it and it, you know, it's a nice reference to the past, but it but it isn't particularly relevant. But actually, as I watched gridlock, I started to see some of the same themes from Macroterra start to assert themselves. Uh, I guess particularly with the mood enhancers or whatever in in in, in some of those early scenes. Yes. So uh, so perhaps the you know the, there's there's a better overlap than than perhaps I'd imagined. Absolutely, yes. that's exactly what I thought mm-hmm. uh, yeah. earlier this evening. Uh, Thirteen years after I first watched it, I finally yeah. realised why Russell put them in there, and mm. I, sh- I realised I should never have doubted him. Not that I doubted him; it was all the other fans that doubted him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, you're right. They they are both. They don't have the same atmosphere. They are both taking science fiction and approaching it from a playful point of view, mm. perhaps. Hmm. Yeah, no, it's absolutely no no coincidence that he chose this particular random monster to bring back and put into that story. Which again, I only realised rewatching Gridlock in the run up to this, um, coming to it post Macra, as it were. I've, I've watched Gridlock many times before, um, hmm. and I've often cited it as my all time favourite Doctor Who story. To be honest, because mm-hmm. it is, I find it so rich in allegory and. It's just so adventurous. It pushes the bounds of what, what I think Doctor Who can, can do. Yes, I, you know, I understand that some fans will take against it because it's not meant, you know, not entirely meant to be taken literally. <laughs> but they, yeah, watching it after after having recently watched the Macra animation, um, very much I came to it with a whole new level of sort of insight and appreciation. I thought, okay, that's yet another. It's operating on yet another level beyond the beyond the ones I'd already noticed. It was very nice. I, again, I hadn't watched it since broadcast. And coming back to it again, and we, we, you know, we, we went through um, Series 13, and then I'd just watched the animation the macro. Watching Gridlock, it, it was that good. It had so many layers to it, as you said, Charles. It was like watching a movie. Mm. And I felt like I'd watched a four-episode story. There were so many different strands to it. I was really, really impressed. I'd forgotten, I, I know he's not popular with everyone, but I'd forgotten how good a writer Russell mm. T. Davis mm. is. Yeah. And the, the macro, I think, again, you, you, you didn't need the macro in Gridlock, but I thought that was a very nice touch and a, a nod to the past. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I agree with you, Simon, and, and uh, it was exactly the same thought I had. I was in exactly the same place. I hadn't seen it since original broadcast. Um, uh, my view of it at the time was that it was quite slight, and and I couldn't I couldn't be more wrong. I, 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 on watching it this time, I thought, what a fantastic writer RTD is! What what a lot of nuance there is in it, and and how unlike yeah, some of the stories yeah. we've just endured in in uh, <laughs> in series eleven that that, that that you know that really lacked that 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 good character writing and and the very strands of plot. Mm. That's something I didn't I, I I didn't spot straight away when it was broadcast um one of the drivers of one of the vehicles the the pinstripe mm. guy i thought that's that's max normal from judge dread oh that's right and then i did a little okay. bit oh, i yeah. did a little bit more reading and russell t davis is a huge Dr- mm. judge dread and i presume 2000 ad in comic fan as well <laughs> apparently he based the undercity on mega city one in oh, judge dread oh, right, right. So again, that I, you know, again, my appreciation of that story grows even more because I'm a I, huge fan of all I, that as well. I don't well. know how much of it was in the script, but there's another visual mm. element which appeared, which I remember caused a lot of um, excitement when the first production photos were leaked, and it turned out to just be a purely visual motif. The the couple, 
at the very beginning who um, oh the American Gothic couple and, and yeah that's right yeah <laughs> I remember people spinning on the forum spinning vast fantasies about a, a story which had some debt to American Gothic mm. The, mm. the famous yeah. painting yes <laughs> and and though it didn't mm. Mm. I'd I'd love to go through the 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 whole I was kind of taking notes on that the, the people they go past the um the the doctor the various vans that the doctor jumps in and out yeah. of you've got the the man all in white <laughs> with his white with his robe white suits and his white drink and everything you've got the the Japanese manga yeah, the girls nu- you've got the new the nudists <laughs> who appear to be Adam and Eve yeah. and then you've got the red you've got the red man below them and then um, somewhere along the line you've got the wolf girl with her two blondes her two blonde blonde teenagers so it's, I'd love to work out I'm sure that they are all references to various things and and mm. uh, I was thinking Magritte with the pinstripe man, but yes, uh, Max Normal makes much more sense because I was comparing ties. Would you believe I was I was looking at images of Magritte bowler hat paintings and um, and thinking no, none of the ties match what he's wearing. <laughs> but I'm sure I'm sure there's stuff from the Garden of Earthly Delights mm. and things like that in there. And you know what, what I thought about a gridlock uh, watching it again is how everything is better. I mean, the titles are, are, are so much better than than much that we've seen since. The, that, that simple um, representation of the yes. tunnel that appears, mm. I guess, from Rose onwards. But it, it, it's rarely mm. been bettered recently. Uh, the, the, the music, the title music, again, I thought was probably, you know, as, as good yeah. a version as, as, as we've had in the, in the new series. There was there was so much about it that at the time I, I don't know what I was doing. I I, 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 th- I think the first series when when RTD came back and maybe this is something to be hopeful about with with Chris Chibnall. His his writing wasn't kind of the best thing in it. You know, you, you had the 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 burping bins and the farting aliens. M- mm. Most of the things in series one that that RTD wrote were the less exciting ones. But you know, by by this point, it's it's really rich, and and he's really on top of it, and and, and uh, yeah, there's the, the, there's a lot going on, and, and and I can understand Giles now why why you enjoy it so much. It's... Giles, yes, can I put you on the spot and ask you to talk us through the allegory? Oh, good lord! Because well, so... I like to, I like to hear clever people. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, you know, one thing it's uh, has in common with the um, with macro is that both things are kind of stories about societies in denial in their own way. And we have you know, yeah. this whole thing, yes, with the um, the girl who goes and buys drugs so she forgets her family at the stars and everything like that. The gridlock of the of the motorway is is obviously, a, I guess, is an existential metaphor for for life itself, you know, which obviously mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of people... And there's the, there's the line about the fact that they might travel 10 miles in six years... And at that point, I just wrote down the absurdity of that is absolutely the point of this entire story, that it's... Um, that it's it's like driving in central London, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yes, you're talking to someone who's just passed yeah. his driving no, tests. So. Quite. On, on that very simple level, it's satirical, as mm. in, wow, this is only slightly sillier than the things we actually put ourselves through. Mm. But yes, as Giles is saying, it's also slightly more to it. Everyone ascending to heaven at the end. Yeah, from, yes. They're either, they're either, are they returning yes. from hell to the real world? Mm. Are they returning from the real world? Are they ascending from the real world into well, there's the whole, something? There's, I know, that's the thing. It's too, I think it's too smart to, to um, you know, it's, it's one of those... Oh, it's, it's it's one, to tie itself down to one specific yes, thing. It's not, yes, is it? it's, exactly. I think, I think 
RTD, we know he's you know he's an avowed atheist and so on, but I think he's not not a, yeah. not a person of faith. But he's but he's nevertheless interested enough and respectful enough, I think, of it hmm. to not absolutely hammer hammer anyone over the head with a particular message. About, a lot about of great it. atheist writers are write like like writing about hmm. faith and people well, mm-hmm. because they, instance, if you're, yes. if you're a humanist, if you're a humanist and you're interested in people, hmm. then you're interested in why people believe hmm. things. Yes. Or, you're interested in people who aren't like you mm. if you're a good writer, yeah. not just people who are like mm. you. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it is an interesting point, that, with, with, the, with, with the faith thing. I mean, so at the very least, I guess, what he's saying is that faith is important in that context, in the middle of the story, to, you know, to giving people a, a sense of, why should I keep going with mm. this? We keep on driving towards the um, journey's end. Mm. Yeah. But but you feel that it's a bit more than that. I mean, I mean, it could be the you know the happy clappy worky song from Macra mm. in that place if it was just that. And you get the sense that uh, you know this the, the the old rugged cross is a sort of nonconformist hymn. It's probably something from maybe a a Welsh chapel that that RTD's heard in his youth uh, that that kind of struck a chord. And and while I mean, it, to some extent, it's actually the core of the Christian faith. Uh, the, the 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 cross and the symbol of forgiveness and and, and restoration. Nonetheless, it, it, you know, it, it'll be something perhaps from his childhood that, that he remembers as being perhaps either a, a happy place or or, or 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 something where he saw at least that people were taking um, strength and comfort from. I think you know us so well, Doctor. We are not abandoned, not while we have each other. This is for all of you out there on the roads. We're so sorry. Drive safe. It's interesting. I watched the um, I watched it this time on um, out of out of sheer inertia. I actually I actually watched it on Netflix because I happened to have Netflix on, and I thought mm-hmm. oh, I need to watch this. And um, and I had subtitles on. And the um, and at the end of the old ragged cross bit, they um, they I think they described it as music <laughs> music fades into schmaltzy crescendo. As um, wow. So it's you know the the bits where where. Um, where Murray Goals goes off, um, yes, goes kind of yeah. off off tune just to give it a um, just at the end after after the last line, and um, I thought yes, there is a there is a point there that in some ways this this thing is is a is being given to them as a as a pablum as it were, but on the other hand, and that seems to the timing of that is that it it jolts you know it then jolts the doctor out of his inaction because that's the point at which he. Swings into action and decides he's going to go and rescue, you know, get down there yes. and rescue Martha. Yeah. And again, I think you know this is the thing that although it's in some ways there's a thing about delusion and you know, and you could say okay, and you know the the fact you can't, you know, no one's seen a policeman as it were for you know, for how how many years they've been stuck down there, twenty years or something mm. like that, apparently, and you know they 
they are phoning the police and um, and being put on hold, which I guess there's a there's a fair metaphor there and things like that, possibly. But on the other hand, the whole thing is redeemed by the the fact that the, the story absolutely hinges on Martha's faith in the Doctor, I think, yeah. and Bo and Hay, Bo, the face of Bo's and her, and novice Ames willingness to sacrifice themselves in some ways to um you know I mean the, the face of Bo literally sacrifices himself mm. yeah, yeah to save everyone yeah and you have you yeah. have this thing that the last thing that the mm. you know the city died of the drug the bliss drug in seven minutes flat and the last thing they did was to seal off the undercity and they they even say the people on the motorway mm. aren't lost they were saved hmm Yes, and yes, you have this thing, the face of Bo, and that's a very, you know, very obviously, you know, it's it's kind of it's up there with Aslan in terms of in terms of kind of Christian metaphors. Yeah, of, yeah. Um, you know that he dies to save to save the city. So you know, it's absolutely it's all about Martha's faith in the Doctor is what sees them through in the end. So so yes, in some ways you're you're being led to believe, okay, the whole thing's the faith these people have is a delusion that's keeping them going through an existential grind but on the other hand you know it's it's redeemed in the end some um, mm. as it as indeed is yeah mm. as indeed to some extent it's the doctor's own you know the fact the doctor's then rewarded with with the message from Bo at the end and obviously on another level which um oh, who is it there's a there's a brilliant essay out there i can't remember who wrote it but he pointed out of course that, you know that the the story also is about the doctor and and coming from where it was coming where it was in the series and that the Doctor's just picked up Martha somewhat on the rebound and is, is deliberately kind mm. of, you know, isn't telling, isn't revealing the truth to her. And it's, it is about the Doctor getting past, you know, it's, it, he's gridlocked in his own, mm. in his own way and kind of yeah, true. reaches the end and, you know, and, and is confronted about it and starts to yeah. move, yeah, true. move forward from the Rose thing, mm. really. Yeah, and I, I'm not sure that we actually get to it in the lyrics of Abide With Me at the end, but certainly there's a couple of lines in that mm. which go, where is death sting, where grave thy victory, mm. uh, that, that that perhaps are also relevant to the face of Bo, I yes. suppose, or indeed the, 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 the people earlier on mm. who've sealed off the Undercity, that they have, mm. in dying, they've managed to, to um, have an impact beyond their mm. death. But yes, yeah, I was going to say that the fact it's, it plays out on another hymn, in the same way that has a completely different, it then has a completely different context that people are singing because they've been, free, you know, they've been freed, and they've been redeemed, if you like, in a, mm. you know, if you want to, if you want to talk in a kind of Christian sense, that was sort of their, their ascent, mm. and so on. It's interesting because you, you might have said that Amazing mm. Grace might have been more, more relevant at that point, but but Abideth Me is kind of more elegiac. It's it's, it's slightly mm. melancholy, and perhaps actually it, 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 it's suitable because it kind of it kind of cuts across slightly that atmosphere mm. while still supporting it. Yes, it's interesting. I think part, part of me, and you know, because it's a few yeah, it's a few years since I've watched it recently, and and part of me has kind of edited in. Amazing Grace into the soundtrack at some at some point possibly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, th- I think we've stunned the others into silence. <laughs> it was it was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> One other thing though, Sally Calypso in control. Do you not think there's a similarity there? There's a um, there's a um, yeah, there's a parallel definitely. to be yeah to be given again. You're getting holographic messages that yeah. are leading you to believe hmm. the role of yeah. the the macro. In, in gridlock, Aha. 
um, the big the big reboot of Doctor Who suddenly you had cutting you know real genuine cutting edge technology and CGI to do things with old monsters and you know it's a scriptwriter's dream really but did someone look at the macro and think no nah, there's not much we can really do with them we'll 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 just have them as mindless creatures underneath this motorway and all this smog instead of making them more intelligent and man- menacing and making more of them using that's um modern day well, that, technology that just comes from the script yeah Russell, yeah i think i think he said at the time that he need yeah. he needed a creature like that, that. he needed a creature that was living down in the dark live, living on mm. f- fumes and gas and um mm. something in the back of his fan mind thought oh macra and obviously he realized that didn't quite fit with the way we saw them before so he added a one-liner from the doctor mm. to say that was five billion years of devolution is it the same is it the same planet no, he talks about how they controlled most of this galaxy at one stage. Yeah, so um, Yes, that's right. You know, again, he does that nice Holmesian thing of, of sketching out a, a, in, in just a line of dialogue a, a fast vista, which you just get a glimpse mm. of through time and space. Here, we could, again, we could have whole stories of macro empire. <laughs> if in a different mm. world, in a different world, <laughs> and possibly even in this world, if I get my way. Wait, no. big, another one for Big yeah. Finish? Uh, if, if there's if there's if there's a role for Nick Briggs well, in Nick, it, Nick might, can be might very might camp yes. <laughs> I mean, they are much 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 larger than ones in the Macro mm. Terror, but it's ironically they are close. The ones the cartoon versions <laughs> yes. are moving in that direction. They are. They are yes. Well, I was so, so I was thinking that myself, Paul. I thought perhaps perhaps the cartoon Macro were closer to the the Gridlock one. I think they've both taken the same decision. They've thought we can make them bigger and better. Mm than they were in 1967, than Shawcraft. Let's show Shawcraft models who's boss. <laughs> it's, it's the rallying cry of many mm. creatives throughout, throughout history. I also think the other, the other difference between this and, and, and Macro Terror is that the effects are so much better, like the Macro, but also the makeup effects, like the cat makeup, is mm-hmm. really excellent. The first time I saw it, I thought it was really good, and when I saw it again, I thought, it's still really, really good. Like... You, know, you can make Ardell O'Hanlon look like a cat. Mm. Still sounds like Dougal from Father Ted, but he looks mm. like a cat. Uh, so it's it's actually really, really, really good effects. And you know the skeleton effects is actually really quite good too. So uh, then the whole the whole thing just seems much as as you pointed out earlier that um, you know, modern cutting edge technology, I think is what Simon said, um, is really apparent here in in many ways. And it's not dark and gloomy like um, Macro Terror would have been to hide the fact that the prop's so bad. Mm. Why does um, Martha seems to attract a fair amount of flack in fandom, but um, Giles' excellent overview of the story, um, she helped make it a really strong story. And I, I, yeah, she's a bit of a favourite of mine I've, in this, in this yes. series as well. I've got no problem with Martha as a character, the person. At the time, and I find my opinion hasn't changed, I really didn't like the whole angle of the way the Doctor treated her mm. with his rebound from Rose. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a bit silly and distasteful, and I, and I, haven't, I think he should be above those sorts of emotions, and I think it made him look a lesser being. It was rather silly. And um, mm. she's not... Uh, I don't want to be unkind. I don't really like the acting choices that brought Martha to life. That's all I'll say. Um, mm. I th- with, um, with Martha, does she suffer from... I mean, 
I, I really like sort of contemporary companions in Doctor Who. Did she suffer slightly from being too close to being like Rose? I know, I know she's a trainee doctor, but she comes across as very urban and trendy and hip and with it a bit bit like rose was she too similar to rose perhaps hmm. rose she sandwiched she sandwiched between rose and donna mm. and rose and donna are both um, actresses playing working class so they are slightly larger than life i, th- fr- I think free Radjaman is playing not playing as well she's playing herself isn't she she doesn't seem particularly different in real life so i think i think it's it's a fair point that she she's not necessarily all that credible as a trainee doctor but i think given that that's not really a a point of this particular story i think she fits quite well into the story and she she's quite good at conveying that upset at, at the doctor's behavior and then calling him out and then they have mm-hmm. quite a good conversation at the end of it so given the fact that you don't you know there's, there's no sense in this one that she's a medical student I think it works reasonably well. I, I, I think I, I understand what you're saying that that, that across the, the the season arc, maybe she's less credible than she appears in this particular story. I guess the only bit where she betrays her medical leanings, as it were, when she rips the drug patch off the pregnant girl's neck, hmm. which is oh, a point. little a little sharp little moment where you think, yes, she, yes, it's something. It comes across as something she has a very strong opinion about immediately. And it's it's a nice little hmm. touch, but yeah. It, to, for me, watching it, it, it reminded me. Oh yeah, of course, trainee, yeah, trainee doctor, and it it chimed with it. It feels like it's the kind of yes. There's no other mention of of that, and it's not really relevant to the story. But it's again, you know, without wishing to wail on, you know, the most recent super, you know, season eleven, series eleven. Again, it's the, it's the kind of little moments that we were kind of crying out for with regard to Yaz Yaz's character, and um, on yeah. several occasions we were thinking. You could have put yeah. in a tiny little moment there, that would have just reminded us of, you know, and kept her kept her character on on brand as it were, and that was you know, and that was often the kind mm. of thing that Russell was a master of. Yeah, indeed. So, have we got any other observations that we want to make specifically on gridlock, or you know, do we want to to then move on a bit more with the compare and contrast? So, so I think we've, we, you know, we've we've already said that there are quite a lot more uh, similar themes than we'd originally imagined in terms of the of the two stories. I think it's fair from from my point of view to say that I enjoyed Gridlock far more than I enjoyed Macra Terra. It's a much better piece of work. I mean, you can't really deny that. My defence of the Macra Terra is more that it does more with the very basic juvenile format of sixties Who than some of its peers. Mm-hmm. So it's you know it's a, it's a mild mm-hmm. defence. But, uh, you know, compared to it, Gridlock's a work of art. But they, you know, it has 50 years of progress to build upon. Mm. I'm not saying that that Ian Stewart Black is no Russell T Davis, though obviously he isn't. I was hoping that the the macro animation would change, completely change my evaluation of the macro tower, just just as I did with um, Enemy of the World when Philip Morris Mm. returned that. But, so that's why I felt a bit let down when I when I sat through it. Whereas when I revisited Gridlock a few days ago, uh, that was fantastic. I I far more appreciated it when I saw it again than when it was first broadcast. And um, it, it it I think you'll be rewarded by rewatching that over and over again. I mean, Giles has inspired me to go back and rewatch it already. 
with some of those points you made as well about the, the, the religious themes running through it. That's something else to watch out for in it. Hmm. What about what about the uh, the character of the Doctor in uh, Gridlock? Can I just completely ignore what you said and ask about the character of the Doctor in the Macro Terror? Troughton's being slightly weird and shady, and not always uh, not always doing yeah. the right thing uh, mm. in the in the moment, even though he ultimately comes out on in the, in the same way well, that he, he does in a lot of his early stories. Mm. It's yeah, he gets he gets Medoc into a lot of trouble, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, basically kills mm. him. <laughs> but, well, no. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's odd. I think these early Troughton stories, a lot of the time he's just an anarchist, isn't he? He's, I mean, it's, maybe that was trying to mm. ma- they were trying to mm. make him distinct from Hartnell in that sense. But you can't. It hangs over from the power of the Daleks that once he's established, he's the first Doctor who arrives in a situation, and you ultimately know that he's there to fight the good fight and put things right. And yet he goes about it in a very peculiar way. Mm. Do, um, when do you when mm. do you think? When do you think he loses that? Ooh. He's still being... His behaviour confuses Jamie and the evil of the Daleks, so by that point, Jamie does, yeah. isn't expecting well, and his, his whims. Of... That's odd as well, isn't yes. it? That's, that's probably yes. the, that's a bit of a return of it, mm. and possibly for the last time, but yes, you're right. But I think by the time, you get, to where an, by the time you get to where an enemy, he's... Um, it was always like that. Yeah. more clearly... Doctorish. Yes. Irresponsible. Irresponsible. It only took me twenty seconds to think of the word. <laughs> He's <laughs> the macra is is kind of closer to power and Highlanders, I guess. Whereas we've just had Moonbase, and actually in Moonbase, he although he has his moments, uh, you know, with, when he's pulling off people's shoes and generally uh, doing a bit of horseplay in in episode two. Generally in Moonbase, he's he's more like the archetypal Trout and Doctor. Uh, from later on, that than uh, in this, and certainly than the water menace. I guess it's his methods. Ultimately, he delights in anarchy and, and destruction, like making an omelette by breaking eggs, doesn't mm. he? He's just mm. he likes he's enjoying himself when he when he's ripping those um, control boxes off the wall, not just going about in a methodical way as as Hartnell might mm. have done. Mm. Well, it's um yes, obviously another thing is both of these stories are about they're they're an example of that. That trope of story, you know, that type of story in which the Doctor lands and creates a revolution overnight. Um, yeah, yeah, it, it did feel very McCoyish to me. As mm. I, as a thread that runs for me that runs through this and McCoy to Kablam mm. from from last yes, year. Yes, yeah, it's um, it's quite an attractive formula. Mm, I think so. I enjoy that. Um, can I just ask, since I've, um, since everyone else has watched it recently, my recollection was, but there's a moment when Troughton's Doctor. I, as I recall, fairly unprompted, says, "You know, was it something scuttling or some, some something insecty scuttling?" To mm. uh, he's quite he's yeah. questioning someone. I presume it's me, Doc, because nobody else will talk about the macro. And, and I'm, I'm just trying to remember because I, it struck me, in the what in the cinema, and I was thinking, have they cut something out? Have I just did I just miss some moment when he was. So, which moment are you referring I d- to? Again? I just, I just trying to remember whether there's, whether there's a moment. Are you talking about in the first episode where the Doctor says, "Yes, they don't need to crawl across the ground." Yes, and meet, yeah, that's it. And has he been? Has he, and Peter Jeffrey says, "Why? Why did you exactly. say that?" Has he been given some? Cu- I, I was slightly. Has confused he been given accused of that, that beforehand by Medoc or someone? Um, yes. Okay. That. Yeah. Um, I think the only way that could make sense is be- if the Doctor 
is referring to what he saw in the TARDIS scanner at the end of the previous oh, story. Of course. That when they arrive, they're expecting giant yes. crowns. So I think that's where that comes from. The, the bit that confused me is why the reaction is, why did you say that? As if, I mean, the, the people in charge, the Earth leaders, the colony, don't know about the macro. Mm. And if they do, it's only sub, some sort of subconscious feeling, surely. So why do they react? Dame, the whole there is no such thing as macro. People who talk about macro, people who talk about things scuttling in the night, mm. are subversives. Where does that come from? It doesn't really tie together to me. Mm. It's as if they do know these things are there and they're trying to cover them up. But at the end of the story, it's quite clear that nobody knows. Mm. They don't know why they're what they're covering up or why they're doing, why these rules are in place. Mm. Oh, I'm talking myself out of liking it again now. <laughs> I, I was I was just wondering because um, because I was because my my initial thought before I thought about the scan yeah before you reminded me about the scanner screen was I was thinking has has the doctor encountered the macro before? Oh and well, because I I do love it when you say things like this because I get to write down on my big, your big <laughs> in my possible big ideas. ideas yes. Yeah, um, macro prequel by <laughs> Paul Morris and Giles Sparrow. Yes. <laughs> You get me in that door somehow, um, and uh, well, because you... I just was interested because um, Ian Stewart Black kind of has form for that in his other two stories. They both <laughs> do involve kind of suggested backstory that we have the the elders of the planet of the Savages have been apparently uh, apparently the the um, the first Doctor Who fans to uh, to actually break through the fourth wall and make it onto television because they've been watching. The Doctor's Adventures for, um, <laughs> for a few yeah. few years, and in the War Machines, although although they don't name Doppy and Chesterton, the Doctor is quite quite easily able yeah. to um, th- go and blag his way in because he's obviously known to these. It's to similar these but different because that, in those first two stories, they yes, as you say, they people welcome him. They don't. They, they, not only do we not have that moment where he has to win mm. them round, or but they say Doctor Who, come in, Doctor Who, <laughs> we know all about you, come. come how can you help us? Whereas here, <laughs> Pete, uh, here he gets around that moment by just having the the columns being very welcoming. Yes, um, initially. But I, I just I just wondered and, whether there was a hmm. suggestion. Yes. So so the, the the line in the script is: Do they, for instance, appear to crawl slowly yeah. over the ground? So that could be, as as as, as you're suggesting, uh, to do that image of the, yeah. of the crowd creature. But if there's any money in it for screen. me, it will say that there was another story. <laughs> no, on the subject of this, um, <laughs> of the Doctor being an anarchic force, it almost strikes me that in some ways this story is designed for him. I mean, it may not have been. I don't know whether Ian, my mate Ian Stuart Black, um, had any wrote came up with the idea after being told what the new Doctor's character was like. Who knows? But it's a story in which he can come in. The whole point is that he comes in and breaks all the rules, small, large and small. And that was why, I think, the the erasure mm. of the rough... What's it called again? Rough and, rough and tumble. tumble. No. Mm. Yeah, scene mm. was controversial because it wasn't just a bit of frippery. It's the first sign that the Doctor is going to... is not cannot be controlled, cannot be yeah. numbered, mm. <laughs> boxed in, and so on. He's not a... Number is a free man. Exactly. It did make me think. Oh, yeah. Oh, of course, I should have watched New Earth before I watched this. Probably just to see how the two things connected. Um, At the time, I thought it was 
a bit disjointed in a way that it belonged to that subcategory of Russell T Davis stories where he would sometimes go all in for one idea and then in a subsequent story that was a sort of sequel or semi-sequel to that he would just overturn it like like with Harriet Jones one minute mm. she is going to be the pre- the prestige of a yes. golden age and the next story he's decided to make her the villain because it just goes with his instincts and mm. we learned so much about New Earth but then he kills them all off mm. here and it's not linked to anything that happened in the first story it's mm. not Fa- systemic failures in that society no. that bring about their downfall. It's just a new story he's telling said in the same place. Mm. Which I think is why when that, that, that fabulous I mean, audio company, Big Finish, came to do their series of, of New Earth tales, which I think won awards across the board mm. um, <laughs> in 2017, we moved the story on slightly from Gridlock. It's the story of the, the second golden age of, of New Earth where society has, re, has reformed and we're now able to to go mm. out and to explore new areas of the planet mm. without being tied to continuity. And, and what, 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 fabulous, uh, what fabulous writers did they have oh, um, goodness uh, me. contributing to that um, series? There was the, excellent, the very excellent Roy Gill. There was uh, TV's Roland Moore, uh, creator of Land Girls. Yeah. Very good. Um, some idiot called mm-hmm. Matt Fitton. Um, I see his name in a lot of things. I'm not quite sure what he has to do with it. There's, oh, there's who's the fourth one? Phil Morris. Um, Phil Morris, exactly. <laughs> yes, it was probably Joanne writing under an assumed name because we know she has <laughs> aspirations in that direction. <laughs> yes, Phil Morris. Phil Morris wrote <laughs> *The Skies of New Earth*, which is set in the hitherto un- unexplored regions in the lower stratosphere. Yeah. Okay. Um, it doesn't bear too mm. close examination from a scientific perspective, John. Don't worry about that. But it does have rocket pack wearing polar bears. <laughs> and, uh, Excellent. And yeah, sorry, you can cut this bit out, um, Richard. It <laughs> you, you can't possibly cut out the rocket pack wearing polar bears. It's just, they stay. No, no, no. no it's solidly part. Solidly part of the something who canon now. Can I pretend that it wasn't a um, plug and it's actually uh, the whole thing is a tribute to just how rich the ideas were that we we all thought that there was enough to explore, even though New Earth was only technically in two Doctor Who stories, three if you count the end of the world, mm. this the year five billion mm. you could call yes. it. Yes, um, gen- genuinely we thought mm. that's something. I say we, <laughs> they thought there's something worth exploring, and um, you know some of the mm. more sceptical of our listeners um, brought brought their scepticism game to play when it was first announced but it, it won quite a few people over so the, the doctor in 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 gridlock is not obviously heroic to start off with you know so so he kind of you know storms into to it thinking it's all going to be wonderful like in in new earth not that it was always wonderful in new earth but he kind of he, he's, a, he's a bit like he was at the start of new earth and uh, and then falls straight into trouble with that and then he gets into a into a funk and a sulk and and you know he's quite defeatist in the middle of it um and then of course he is her- a little bit heroic towards the end and then it's but then he's called out by martha why you know why are you hiding all this stuff from me so it, it, it's quite a complex character in this story yes mm, yes <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I'd agree with that. I don't, I'm not sure there's much to much to add. I think that's a good analysis mm. of... You know, this, this is the thing. I mean, Tennant's Doctor, yeah, I found, in terms of personal preference, I think season three is probably... Series three 
is probably my favourite uh, series in general of all of all of um, the recent of the of the revival of Doctor Who. I think, um, and the, but I think yes, his his mannerisms and so on start to get over over egged, and I think it's the one thing that gets to me about se- uh, about series four is just like I, I always felt like. Okay, I can see this is absolutely firing on all cylinders, and and Catherine Tate and David Tennant make a great team. But it just felt a bit by that point they were starting to write too much to to Tennant's mannerisms and what he'd already brought to the role, and it felt like it was having the um, later series of Friends syndrome in terms of in terms of Tennant being all oh humans oh yes I love them yeah <laughs> let me lick something. <laughs> um, whereas I think that's that's the kind of thing. It's better, better if you leave it to the actor to to do their own thing. I'm not quite sure how directly relevant that is to gridlock, but I think this this kind of catches him at the point before it starts to go over the top, definitely. And there's some interesting complexity in there. And uh, the other story that it made me really want to watch after seeing the um you know, that that end scene end scene with him and Martha. Uh, beautifully played. All the, all the stuff went with tenants. You know, again, it's one of those lovely things where where you can do wonders. I think because you've got a you've got a fanboy in the role um, channeling. You know, so so it's like channeling the Hartnell descriptions of of Gallifrey or you know the the early stuff mm. and you know Bertwee yes. and you know they you know um, and I think yeah, I, it made me think. I really want to watch um, the end of time now. Just to see what what his mm. reaction is, mm. you know, just to actually rewatch again for his reaction to actually getting Gallifrey back. I I remember some viewers were unconvinced. I thought there was some sort of dis- discrepancy between his glowing remembrances of Gallifrey here and and what we see, what we mm. see it was in its final days. But and, and I think that is even referred to in the end of time. Mm. It's, it's another one. There's one line as he he says, "That's how I'd like to remember mm. it." Yeah. Ah. But with hind, but with hindsight, which may or may not have been planned, but with hindsight again, it fits with the tone of of Gridlock, of the rest of Gridlock, doesn't it? The way he's his misty-eyed eulogising mm. on the <laughs> subject. It's more like it's a bit like an expression of faith in the idea of Gallifrey mm. more than the reality. Yes. Yeah. Or maybe he's just remembering his childhood. I don't know. We kind of half talked about it earlier on, but I mean, do we want to sort of have our concluding thoughts on? The two stories. In terms of summing it up, then um, you'll not be surprised to think that um, to to learn that. So I think that Gridlock is a is an example of a um, of you know Doctor Who at its absolute finest, and um, and in fact, yeah, it's one of those one of those rare occasions where I'd say it's an absolute shining example of what television drama can do. Um, whereas Macra is a it's a curious egg. It's 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 interesting. There's there's interesting stuff going on under the surface, but I'm just not sure whether it's one of those things where it would have been the Sasa whether whether the Sasa would have been obvious in at, at the time of broadcast, and we, we're just all missing something. I think I've already you know said it really. I, I think it's works best when viewed in its context, mm. rather than by comparing it to. To one of the mm. best works by one of Doctor Who's best writers, forty-five years later. Mm. Oh well, that's the concept. This concept for a podcast bugger, then, isn't it? 
Yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah. I mean, it's better well, it's I mean, better than I, the underwater menace. So. True. But we, but we belied that, I, I guess, by our discussions last time when we, when we talked about uh, series... 11 and, and and that came up unfavorably against some of the older mm. ones so yeah i i, I don't I, I think the, the format is sound i, I, I think um i think i mean I, i'm still holding out hope that perhaps if we actually got the chance to see macro terra in its original form it might as, as simon was saying earlier it might benefit from that and, and you know we, we might see it more in the light of of enemy of the world with the little nuances and and and, and the 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 acting business that that is now lost, and that can't come across in the animation, and that and that might elevate it a bit. I mean, it's it's never going to turn, uh, it completely from one thing to another, but it, but we might find that that elevates it a bit. I, I think from from this concepts um, perspective, um, it just shows that just because it's old and from the sixties and missing, it doesn't necessarily mean it's actually better than something that's come later in New Who. Like I think people say that New Who's none of it's any good, but that's not exactly true. Um, so, and I think in this case that it doesn't compare favourably to Gridlock because Gridlock is actually really good, and it's always going to struggle to do that because it's just not quite. Maybe comparing it to the Happiness Patrol may have been a better, better thing, but who knows? But I think that from a from a like for like thing, Gridlock is is a much better story, I think, and I think that we all agree there. Like we do. I, I know I've missed a bit. <laughs> and yet, the people marketing the 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 Steel Book saw fit to 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 present it against um, Gridlock in that mm. package. So yeah. Mm. So there we go. Mm. Okay. I, look, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna bring things to a conclusion. I, th- I think we've we've had a good discussion there, and we're probably not really going to get masses more out of it. Okay, so that brings us to the end of our first episode of Something Who. Uh, we intend to run these roughly about once a month, uh, and next time we're going to be doing Spearhead from Space and Rose. So uh, please come back and listen <laughs> to us talking about those. I'm oh, sorry, I can't see it. What's the What's that? I thought they were supposed to have something in common, these stories. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I've got a month to think about it, have I, and try and spot something. Okay, I'll, I'll get me thinking cap on. But anyway, in the meantime, we've, we've opened the roof, we've cleared out the fumes, it's time for Mike to head off into the sunshine, and for the rest of us probably to <laughs> hit the sack. Although not, as uh, has been mentioned in, uh, previously in the podcast, together. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's just Tim's slash fiction, isn't it? Yeah. So until the next time, it's goodbye from us. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Yep. Ta-ra. Bye. Have the same.
Mike, did you manage to get all of your quips in that you hoped for? Oh, most of them. Yeah, I, I just wish I had some <laughs> chocolate. Chocolate oh, no, eclairs to eat tonight. We the forgot moment. to. Didn't we forget to cue Mike's opening joke? No, that's all right. I, I decided to drop that one. Oh. I was looking forward to it. Well, no, it wasn't good. You weren't looking forward to it at all. (laughs) (laughs) I can't lie to you. No, I wanted to know what it was. I was going to have a mouthful and I was going to say... Don't tell us, don't tell us. Oh. Yeah, go on. Yeah, I was going to have my mouthful. It was like, no, 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 it's all right. And I was going to pretend that I was eating chocolate eclairs because it's apparently hilarious. Um, As a reference back to uh, the scaffold, of course. Um... Which was just so riveting. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> I, I got put up to it by Declares. by yeah, yeah, Mark yeah. from Forty Two to Doomsday. Said so you've got to get a chocolate eclair joke in there somewhere. So does Mike sound like a Cyberman to everybody else, or is it just me? Yeah, well, it's not it, it's not going that well, but I think the recording yeah. that Mike's yeah, the problem is that Google yeah. Hangouts has been playing up badly this morning. I've lost you about fifteen ah. times already today. Mm. I think. Oh, and you've been going there. Well, we could go back. <laughs> Sounding like Crichton from we could go back Red to Dwarf. To s- oh, dear. It's funny actually, <laughs> but then you just drop out. Oh, so anyway, we can go. Back, we can go back to Skype again if you're. Well, if we want to keep Paul's computer mm, crashing, well, yeah. Oh, look, it, play, it was all right the last time. I don't know. It's just this morning. I think it's just. You know. Oh, have we? We haven't. It's our wonderful yeah. Australian internet service. And then we'll go straight in. So it's so it's punchier. It's none it's none of this monkeying about doing sketches at the start. Yeah. We've got We'll see how it goes. Mm. Um I was gonna say something. Are you what hoping we'll get letters asking demanding, begging for the return of the sketches? Because we might <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm uh, uh, I, I have I have actually written the five doctors one. Right, yeah. we, uh, we've had a, a letter in the post bag from Mrs. Trellis of South Wales. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I know how much you love that the uh, the uh, the sketches, I, so we won't bother with I that. I do. We do. Yes. I just, just <laughs> well, pa- well, Paul's Mr. Doesn't Abraham, like acting, isn't he? I love it too much. That's my problem. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Sorry. Let's carry on. Okay. So joining us this evening. Uh, oh, hang on. I'm sure. I, I'm sure I had something scripted for this. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Ah. Okay. Ah. Right. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Right. <laughs> 